welcome to the Archive Guys podcast. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm here with my co-hosts. Kelsey Milburn. And? 80s DW for Annie. And today we are joined with our special guest. David Weiner. And we are going to be talking about In Search of Tomorrow, a journey through 80s sci-fi cinema. So uh, Dan and I have met uh, David probably about like seven years ago when you were the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland. And I believe I was on a Comic-Con panel with you, uh, which was we, that was a big friggin' room. <laughs> was, was, that, was that it? Was that, did we, did, we didn't meet on the panel, did we? No, 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 we yeah. met before, before that. Yeah, but... it all goes back to you, the Warner Archives folks, uh, the, the wonderful folks at Warner Archives, you yeah. may or may not know them, uh, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of great stuff for Famous Monsters in terms of uh, advertising and giveaways and that kind of stuff. And uh Got to meet you guys exactly, and yeah. um, and I realized not only were you cool, but you were nice. So there you go. Go figure. But uh, but that was part of our strategy uh, back then because we loved and still love uh, fan magazines and fan driven experiences because it is genuine and organic. And David, you then went on to become a producer, director, and writer of what I will call mega documentaries. Mm -hmm. And your first one was about 80s horror? That's correct. That's correct. So the nutshell behind all that stuff is uh, uh, Famous Monsters, which I really enjoyed doing. And I did seven issues. They were uh, bi-monthly. Every two months, uh, I would have a new issue out. And uh, Sadly, as the way print has gone uh, in the last several years, I think Entertainment Weekly just stopped yeah. producing there. Right, right. I mean, that was a shocker. Yeah. Like that, that, that tells you where we were headed. And so Famous Monsters was, uh, uh, as much as we were loved by the small group that did buy the magazine, print was just dying overall. So um uh, I, I regretfully departed Famous Monsters, and uh, I worked as a freelance writer for The Hollywood Reporter and LA Weekly, and um, what I love to do, I'm giving you a quick background, yeah. is I, I love these nostalgic stories, uh, looking back at movies on their anniversaries and so on, and uh, I had a great opportunity uh, presented to myself on a silver platter um, to make these, uh, to make a documentary called In Search of Darkness, which is about 80s horror movies. And uh, Creator VC is the company that makes them these documentaries. They did In Search of the Last Action Heroes before that. And uh, Rob, yeah, well, thank you. And, and Robin Block is the executive producer of all these films. And uh, the long and short of it is it became a mega doc because it was a crowdfunded project. And we could kind of do anything uh, we want. Right. And the idea at first was just to make a two-hour documentary, but we wanted, um, Robin was very intent on saying, let's do it movie by movie, year by year, in the decade of the 80s, from 80 to 89. And I said, that's awesome. But we got to kind of have some filler in between for some context. And we can't do every movie because there's like close, Too to, many. A thousand, close yeah. to a thousand movies that came out in that decade. So... 
Yeah. We need to be a little more judicious about this somehow. And so what I did was I ended up structuring it where each year has a number of movies that we focus on and then chapters in between. Next thing you know, this crowdfunded documentary is four and a half hours. And they said, we love it, the fans and the backers. And they said, let's see part two. And we ended up doing a part two. And in during this time, Robin's like, now that we've done horror, let's move on to sci-fi. And I'm like, twist my arm, are you kidding me? I'd love to do sci-fi. And so here we are talking about the movie. I thought this was a wonderful way as somebody who was an editor, uh, you know, of famous monsters uh, to share that love of basically catalog, right? And because this is what Dan and I were doing at Warner Archive is like, you're going back, you're, you're bringing these things back out again, but uh, you have a chance to show them sometimes in a new light. I want to interject. What you guys did is very much like what I'm doing with these movies. It's just a different media and platform. But ultimately, you guys were the ultimate curators. I mean, like if I wanted to see The Man from Atlantis, I knew I could go to you and get it. And you guys, I remember very specifically, hooked me up right before I got to talk to uh, Patrick Duffy to do a piece for Famous Monsters on The Man from Atlantis. But it's like there was nowhere else I could have gone but to you guys. And so you guys are the ultimate curators for content for people who A, lived it, watched it, and appreciated it, and B, might not know about it. So you would introduce them to a whole plethora of, of library titles. And where we got lucky in a way is we were there long enough that we released Man from Atlantis three times. Right. Oh, awesome. <laughs> First, it was from existing masters, and that did well. And then we remastered it in 2K for DVD. And that's when we actually got to meet and work with Patrick Duffy. And then one of the last things we did uh, in the year before the pandemic was release the Blu ray. And we didn't go back and release those 2K masters that we had done eight years before but we remastered it again. And if you go uh, online, you can find uh, a clip of the WonderCon panel we did with Patrick Duffy. Kelsey, all I could say is that anyone who watched Man from Atlantis, they went straight to a pool and tried to swim like him and failed yeah. and almost drowned. But... Uh... <laughs> uh, so... That was that was that was Patrick Duffy's swimming is my yes yes totally totally without without the the expensive accoutrement. Well, before we get into a further discussion, why don't we take a look at a little bit of In Search of Tomorrow? What's going to happen? Something wonderful. 1980s science fiction has all of those elements that make greatness in cinema and storytelling. It changed everything. Yeah, I loved it. We felt so creative and we were so loose. Wow, what a great concept. It's the positiveness that made for repeat viewing. It's timeless. Knock me out. Surpasses our brains and goes straight to our heart. Sci-fi truly came of age and exploded in the 80s. It's time to start running! The whole audience for science fiction came alive. It's a ripe genre full of twists and offshoots. 
It was sci-fi movies that you began to take seriously. Showing people the dysfunction that we were headed for. I was the ultimate tough guy. I ain't got time to bleed. It just comes together as a thrill ride. What Pulp does best. Badass sci-fi. Yeah! It still plays. I loved looking up into the stars and imagining what's up there. What I see is possibility, all kinds of possibilities. It's a completely conceivable future. That tells us about ourselves as human beings. I love things that have themes like that. I love the idea that you could just be transported somewhere in time. You built a time machine? What a DeLorean? That's the magic of sci-fi, man. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Wow, that was a great clip. As a non-80s child, well, it's hard because I've seen a lot of the movies in 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 Search of Tomorrow because my dad made me watch them. Right, I was a non-50s <laughs> child. My dad made me watch great, them, yes. Great. great moment in the documentary where, I think it's Joe Dante, David, you, you will know for sure, where uh, they talk about how the 50s sci-fi fed the 80s sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and Shane, you Shane, know Shane Black talks about that. Shane and, Black, that's and, it, right? And Joe and, Dante uh, is very much in the same vein. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, sidebar: Is there any better person to talk about film than Joe Dante? I don't think so. Well, uh, apparently in Los Angeles, you can't make a documentary about film history without including Joe Dante. It's just not allowed. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and and correctly so because he knows it, he's lived it, and he's hilarious. He loves it, and he does really good voices. <laughs> he does. I, I, yeah, he does. Well, he does a great impression of Dino De Laurentiis in my movie. Kelsey, Kelsey, you've seen the film or some of the film. Mm -hmm. I I would love to hear your 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 point of view of what you thought of it. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a connection with your dad because your dad, quote unquote, made you watch a lot of these. But um, you know, what was your what was your take on this? Because there's a big element of nostalgia here for those who were there when these movies first came out but there's also lots of just informational and instructional stuff even if you don't know these movies it's really a movie about movies and a larger context about a decade my big thing was i, I liked how many uh movies that that you put in there um while still putting emphasis on the the big ones like uh et um i really like et mm -hmm. growing up um and that's the other thing that i was going to bring in yeah i don't i don't think i get that sense of nostalgia at least that's not what i was feeling when i was watching it it was more like some of the movies i'm learning about like you said movies it was informational and then other ones it's like i could have watched that yesterday uh -huh. <laughs> so it i liked it a lot well, thanks. I mean, I think it's interesting because because this predates you, I just don't want it to exclude you. So that's why yeah. I think it's important to get your take on 
on how you feel about it. But yeah, I mean, there's no reason why you would get a nostalgic connection to it because these were movies that you sat in the theater with, though you did connect with your dad watching some of these movies. So maybe that there's an element there. And, and I'll just speak in generally real quickly that I think what's cool about this movie is that uh, this movie, whether it's nostalgic or not for you, it's not necessarily about the movies themselves, but it's also about the bigger picture of these films and, and who you were with and where you were when you saw these movies, uh, or if there's a larger story uh, in connection with how you think about these movies. And I think that's what, the, what makes this kind of a big jigsaw puzzle. What's also funny is I, it definitely reminded me more of my childhood than of now, because there's, there's two sides to me. There's the film scholar side where I'm learning about the 80s and the movies that they're making in sci-fi in the 80s from TV history. And then there's the side that's like, my dad showed me these movies because the gore wasn't enough for it to be offensive to a kid, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. PG-13 was a big deal when it was introduced in 84 because, I mean, this was the era of the Dipper Gores and the, you know, the, the scolds, but uh, PG felt too bloody for some people, but they inadvertently created a new category of movie. All the blood, none of the sex. <laughs> you know, yeah, Jaws is PG, you know, and that's more terrifying than the average rated R movie, arguably from that era. For those who aren't, might, might not be in the know, that's in the wake of the, the double dose of uh, Gremlins, which was way too violent for a PG movie, arguably, and Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, which was way too violent, arguably, for a PG movie, where mom and dad went to bring their kid and Junior was crying on the way out. And then right. next thing you but, know, we've got Red Dawn as the first PG-13 movie. But I, I, I want to talk say, about Gremlins. Gremlins is very arguably definitely PG. Gremlins yeah, and a blender, that's just, it's well, kinder trauma. Oh my God. About? And, a puppet, a Muppet is getting blended. And so, Red Dawn, by the way, is G because every red-blooded American should be pro-Wolverines, especially <laughs> today against right. Soviet aggression. How about Buckaroo Banzai? Oh they, my gosh. That's where I was looking for. Did you know, did you, did, were you even aware of Buckaroo Banzai? Yes. So again, Her my dad, dad owns you don't a, know a Buckaroo Banzai comic shop. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. No, he owns, he owns a Buckaroo Banzai like denim jacket that's got all these patches on it, all of this. So of course I had to ask him what Buckaroo Banzai is and it, he gave it a scathing review and said never to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai is the, is the ultimate film that is, uh, in, it, uh, in pieces, it's amazing, uh, but it might not be the sum of its parts, but I won't judge on that. That's other people's uh, decision to make. It's, it's just amazing. So then I'm going to turn it around. What do you recommend in terms of what movie should I have seen that I haven't seen yet? Someone who has seen a lot. I've seen a lot, but. I'm going to recommend Miracle Mile. Oh, for yeah. sure. And, for sure. Yes. And don't find out anything about it. Just yeah. pop it in and watch it. Yes. Miracle Mile. That's an excellent suggestion. And it's, it really is a legitimately great movie. And it's also a great time capsule. Bringing it all the way back, David, what you have created here, and especially with the running time, is a work that's not just a documentary, but it is, as kind of Dan was saying, it's a reference. 
It's it's like the Danny Perry book or or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. Where when you have it, not episode by episode, but this long document, I took it and I started to go, oh wait, I'm skipping to 86. And then I started to watch a little bit there and I go, oh, he's talking about this. Okay, I'm going back to 82. Oh, wait, let me go to 89. Whoa, Mac and me, I'm going back to ET, which is not how- Did you skip short circuit? It's part of the no, no, progress. I, but, but because of the nature of the modern way of watching with a long timeline, I, I approached it as more like a reference book, but yet mm -hmm. you did this incredible work with it where it wasn't just, it is 1980, this is what happened. It is 1981. You also thematically tie them together with different topics. It's not just seeing it in chronological order, but there you worked a weave into it. God, this is like, a, uh, unlike anything I'd seen before in terms of a use of the, especially electronic film format. Right now, you can pre-order and be an initial supporter of the Blu-ray. Can and you? We'll, we'll put that on the screen. How to, how to, right? We're going to yeah, do yeah, that, absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's happening so right now. Right now. Right yeah. now, right now, between now, I'll, I'll pitch, I'll do this at the end as well. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, this long and short of it is that this movie is completely done and you can get it now. But we do this ourselves because we're a small company. And so between now and March 27th, you go to 80sscifidoc.com, 80s scifidoc.com, and you can order the Blu ray or the DVD. And you get your name in the credits, which is super cool. And then we package it and send it to you with some other cool swag. So for me specifically, watching this was great uh, because I constantly find myself specifically in this podcast. Uh, they're referencing like time periods, the 70s, mm -hmm. the 60s, the 80s. And I'm like, I don't really have context for what that looks like. I've seen one thing here, one thing here. I, I kind of have a general idea of what's going on. This was great because it gave me the 80s. I, I know what TV looked like that whole decade. So that's what I really loved about it because, and you, you went in, I mean, I know it was mainly sci-fi. This is what sci-fi looks like. Uh, but I, I, I love that then too, you've worked on other uh, genres hmm. in, in the same way. Well, if I could just say in relation to that, what I think is kind of what I intended to do, and maybe something that you're connecting with is, you know, in between these movies, there are these larger context chapters. A couple of them, most of them are about the craft of filmmaking, you know, whether it's, you know, concept design or whether it's the music or whether it's the visual effects or the practical effects, you know, that kind of stuff. But um there's also, you know, there's a chapter about the Cold War. What I what I found about uh, when I revisited so many of these films uh, was it brought me back to a time that I had really repressed. <laughs> uh, that you know we're in the wake of you know in the waning days of the Cold War, we were living on on a daily basis under the pressure and threat of nuclear Armageddon, and that's no exaggeration. We literally felt like with the superpowers in the news on a daily basis that there might be one day where they just don't dis they disagree or someone pushes the button arbitrarily and we're all gone the next day. 
that was really kind of how we felt. And in revisiting a lot of these films in terms of what would go to tell the story of the 80s and this genre, uh, many of these films dealt with either directly or indirectly uh, nuclear Armageddon or the threat of nuclear war, or even in weird science with like a nuclear missile piercing through the floor arbitrarily that I was like, oh yeah, that. And that meant so much because it was literally because they were you know, connecting from a Newsweek magazine. So um, yeah, I'm glad that you got a, 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 a maybe a more holistic 3D sense of what the decade was rather than just a movie list, which it also is. And right. And go my on, turn. Sorry, go ahead. My turn. My turn. Why is it your turn? <laughs> it I was just, Kelsey's turn. I, I said sorry to her, and then you yeah, said my turn. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just being unfair. Yeah, Matt, you didn't raise your hand. Uh, no, no. I just shouted my turn. It was a new technique. When you compare the beginning of the 80s, and you, and you also set it up for how the industry itself was changing, right? Mm -hmm. Like how genre movies, which were once like in the realm of somebody like Roger Corman or low budget with Star Wars, that changed everything and everybody's thinking. And especially the beginning of the 80s is a reaction to that. Like, how can we strike lightning again, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you get like to the end with the Mac and me's, it's almost like this is the wrong lesson, right? Which is almost kind of setting up something again for the 90s. Even within the film, 1980 to 1989, when we're watching the clips from the 1989 films, like, like I don't know. I mean, you, I mean, we saw the four plus hour version. You, the rough cut, I'm going to ask you, how long was the initial rough cut? 12 the hours? Initial, I, I had an initial rough cut of uh, probably six and a half hours. Okay. And, that, and that's simply just because I stopped because I knew. <laughs> yeah, my enough. eyes are bleeding. But, um, but yeah. you see, you can see like in 85, 86, you can see this change. I mean, like, like in the dock, it's really Robocop that we really see this sort of shift. Are you talking about the look of the film? Like Look. literally just like the, 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 the sheen and the commercial slickness versus the grittiness. Are you talking about content? Are you, what, what, what are you zeroing in on? Well, you're going to be frustrated with this answer because it's yes. <laughs> yes, I'm talking about the look, the content, the style, the approach. Well, it depended, it depended on, it, it, well, in my opinion, just in, in a general sense, it, it depended on the budget that you had. And the cinematographer you had, and and the the filmmaker that you admired the most. So if you saw Ridley Scott's work, you wanted the the glossiest, shiniest thing. You know, you're making you know you're like Alan Parker, or you're you know you're making nine and a half weeks in Birdie and 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 Fatal Attraction. Everything is just going to be looking slick and beautiful and like an MTV music video. But if you're Roger Corman, you 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 only have so much money to make things cer a certain way, and you just want everything to look developed. And of Corman, <laughs> yes. Between between eighty and eighty nine, we have the influence suddenly of HBO and video stores. I think I think the eighties were incredibly uh, inventive and influential based on the amount of different varied varied storytelling that came out during that era. 
And they, they again, with the subgenres, they just went in, in 18 different directions where uh, you've got your friendly alien, you've got your evil alien, you know, you've got your post-apocalyptic, post, I can't speak, post-apocalyptic wasteland, you know, or you've got the, you know, my alien friend in the backyard, you know, named Mac, uh, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, all different ways you could go. But, you know, to your point, I think absolutely this was quite an influential decade. But you also can't discount what you mentioned before is that all the general in general speaking, all the filmmakers were just trying to emulate what they loved as a kid in the 50s. And that's why you had a remake of The Thing. That's why you had a remake of The Blob. That's why you had a remake of The Fly, which all defy the law of remakes that remakes have to suck, you know? But right, yeah, good the, point, yeah. But what's interesting about that is you look at like Siskel and Ebert and how they reacted to John Carpenter's The Thing and how The Thing failed. The Thing is a stone cold classic for our generation. But Roger Ebert called it the barf bag movie of the summer because he's like, why would you take the Howard Hawks produced film and add all these awful, gross special effects to ruin everything? Uh, right? It's yeah. all a matter of perspective. And yeah. have, you, have you ruined my childhood with a remake or not? That didn't right. Didn't right. Yeah, now, whereas I was like, oh, this is great because now we have the Howard Hawks version and a gross version that's much closer to Campbell's story. <laughs> right. So 1982 version of the thing is the only one my family recommends and the one that uh, had been recommended to me over and over and it's great and I love it. Uh, there's also a board game that I recommend. Yeah. yeah. If Very you cool. haven't played the board game, get the board game and play it. I have not um, played that. It's, it's great. If you've played any of those, like it's like kind of like Avalon or Secret Hitler it's it's oh. kind of like a social deduction game. Kelsey, right. Well, who's the thing and who's not? Who's human? Yeah. Who's the thing? Right. Well, uh, Kelsey mentioned Avalon, which is what my board game friends love, and nobody plays Avalon. And uh, they have done podcasts on how I play Avalon wrong. What? I yeah. own a copy of Avalon. Yeah. Oh, Avalon to me means Avalon Hill, and it's a hexagonal. That that's different. Strategy yes. game. Yes. No, there's okay. Avalon Hill is a manufacturer. Perhaps you're yeah. thinking of diplomacy, Dan, which is where friends no, get together no, and stab each other in the back. No, no, I was thinking of broadside. Thank you. I thought you were talking side. about the Barry Levinson movie. I have no idea what you're talking. Also, about. Oh, also, I have a question for David when we get back to. Oh no, oh, you're. That's a great transition. Okay, um, my question was: so when you initially set out to make this, what were the movies that had to make it? That's a great question because I'm a bit of a completist and I want to do everything. And so uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, in making these movies and these movies like this is I hear all the voices in my head who say, why isn't this in the movie? But, but literally as a mathematical equation, you cannot fit it all. Um, so inevitably someone's going to be disappointed and inevitably someone's going to be surprised by what makes the cut. Um, but believe it or not, with a five hour movie, you just can't include it all. And, and that's what's wonderful about if this does well, we'd love to do In Search of Tomorrow Part Two, wow. Part Three, because there's just so much more. I think it was very important to include as many of the blockbusters and really well-known titles as possible, but throw in some eclectic things in the mix that I think are eclectic or at what I think people will think is are eclectic like I don't even know where 
Buckaroo Banzai stands in terms of people, whether they know that movie exists or not. But for me, that might be eclectic, but it's also just a staple. Like you can't not do Buckaroo Banzai. So to me, like if I could throw in a Mac and Me or a Megaforce or something like that, or a Strange Invaders, that to me is a little left of center compared to the Star Wars and the Star Trek and the sequels and the Blade Runner and the Aliens and the Robocop and the Road Warrior and E.T. and Back to the Future that all have to be in this movie. But inevitably at the end of the day, there's never room for everything. And um, Kelsey, may I ask when you were born? Do you mind telling me? 1998. Okay, 1998. So there's a whole segment uh, among the many segments where we do talk about the pre-internet era and how we discovered movies and learned about movies and the joy of Starlog and magazines like that, Cinefax, Cinefantastique, you know, Premiere Magazine, whatever, um, you know, was available. We wanted to just dive into it and find out as much as we could. And this, of course, is way before, you know, uh, bonus features on, on DVDs and Blu-rays and so on. So what was your perception of that? And, and was that a revelation to you or did that feel like the, the get off my lawn segment? <laughs> it definitely, it, it opened my eyes in terms of now I know, you know, that, that these magazines even, even existed, these, these issues that tell you where to find all these movies. And I, some part of me wishes I could still go and grab things like that. I feel like nowadays it's whatever Netflix says you should watch or whatever Hulu says you should watch. I, I missed, or not missed, because I never had it, but I, I wish I had something similar. Well, do you, do you, just in terms of literally the physical, tangible nature of reading a magazine, I mean, is that something that you are ever compelled to do or just it's there's no real reason to because all the other information is easily accessible on your phone or computer or tablet? I think that for me, my first, my first thing that I would do is like, if I were looking for sci-fi movies, I would Google the best sci-fi movies ever made, something like that list of the top 100, right? But anybody can compile that list. You don't have any idea where it's coming from. Whereas I think with these magazines, there is a sense of like officialness and also a sense of credibility that mm -hmm. you get, that, that these movies, you kind of know what you're gonna get that you don't get with the internet. I think you make an amazing point. And I, I love that you said that. There's a, a sense of authority and credibility in a printed publication versus some random person who and can just say what they want on share their opinion online. It's editorial yeah. voice, right? No, and, that, Famous monsters of Filmland very specifically had an editorial voice with Forrest Ackerman's, and he was the OG genre, modern genre fan. And once you were exposed to that and how he processed the films and how he, his memory of films as a childhood, uh, that made that approach more accessible to the monster kids who were reading it. And, you know, like we were talking about, that was almost like an OG DVD commentary. One of the things we do in the podcast is we try to throw spotlight on something that's not readily available that you can find. And then we also talk about things that you can't find. And uh, I don't want to steal the credit because this was Matt's idea, but it just fits my segue. So I'll kick it to Matt 
No, Dan, to... own it, own it, because it's a, it's our, it's our. This is a, right. you're revealing I'll, the I'll... secret sauce of our podcast. Right. So Matt wanted to discuss the '80s TV show, which is a great uh, parallel to this discussion. Uh, Otherworld from uh, '85, 1985. Right now, Otherworld was a uh, short-lived TV series that is very overlooked and underrated because it was sharp and funny in the perfect 80s way because it appears to be about a nice Reagan era family who is lost in alternate dimensionville. But every episode is actually a pretty clever social satire. Roderick Taylor, who wrote the show, created the show, very much made it a comment on other science fiction shows leading up to that show. But it's about a family that through a vacation in Egypt ends up in uh, an alternate parallel earth full of forbidden zones and sectors whose major city, which is Imar, which is a Babylonian city, but it's also there in New York. But at one point, the kids of this family are in a world that don't have the Beatles. And and Matt rock and roll or rock and roll. And so the kids are at a talent contest and they perform. I want to hold your hand, thus igniting in one 48 minute 80s TV show, a whole commentary on the progress of sci fi from being transgressive to commodified within the span of the show. It's very cleverly done. Uh, I don't know how they got the rights to do. I want to hold your hand, but that's a whole other story. And and the episode's called Rock and Roll Suicide. And the reason I bring it up is, of course, it's like Danny Boyle's Yesterday. 2020 and, film. Yeah. And uh, if anybody watching this hasn't seen Yesterday, you basically, the guy wakes up and everyone's forgot about the Beatles and he pretends to be the Beatles. I was in ninth grade when it came out and my family had been moving between school districts. And I even between forbidden zones. Right. Yes. And so when I came and I at one point came back to my old school and even the teachers there were like, okay, new kid. Like (laughs) they really did. So I had an English teacher who threw a paper at me on the history of science fiction. And he gave me a B and said, welcome to Ridgewood. And I'm like, I've been to this school. (laughs) Like you think you're so good at the English class. I was, and so this, this show comes on and it has a wonderful satirical SF premise, but I related very hard to being picked up and dragged to an alternate universe. That was the same. That was the same, but you know, you would think that Chicago and New York wouldn't be that different, but the school was really different. And I had a difficult time navigating it and of course I would make a lot less friends when I'd be like back on earth we had a different (laughs) kind of pizza they'd be like shut up Patterson and eat this crispy biscuit we call a pizza but (laughs) but I I I really like the show also as Dan was saying each episode it's a different social satire world much like Gulliver's Travels one of the first SF you know novels in the English language uh, because, you know, each episode, something is wrong. Like they're the popular boy kid 
was just falling in love every week and getting kicked out. And he's like, I love you, even though you're an android. And well, it was Amanda Wiss. Who wouldn't fall in love with yeah, Amanda Wiss? Yeah, right. Yeah. And she can show you her soul. Yeah, because because you could download it, right? But but every episode was a weird world. But the yesterday one, I probably was the only ninth grader who was like, how could they afford these rights? I really thought that. So when Danny Boyle's movie came out, I'm like, this was that TV show, which I can't remember. And I have to Google the plot. So the name comes up. Where did we get the idea from Stargate? There's some Stargate in other world, you know, conceptually. Sliders. Yeah, sliders. But yeah, you look at, you know, the Egyptian uh, mythology. And next thing you know, you've got a portal to another dimension. That sounds familiar, right? That's that Stargate? No, it's other world. Um, Right. And and working in the mythology into the, the backstory. In yeah. search of the Bermuda Triangle. Those are all things from the time. Well, there's also the Fantastic Journey that came yep. out, which is Spe- And speaking of thing. your film, we got Ike Eisenman, a spectacular interview. I mean, I loved all the formerly kid actors <laughs> you interview in the film are all such great subjects in the film. Will Wheaton, Eisenman, and, and now I'm having an old person moment, the kid from Flight of the Explorer. Yeah, Joey, Joey Kramer. Yeah, Joey Kramer's yeah, so well, good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Can, and, and going back to Other World for a second, though, Fantastic Journey, for those who don't know, that's essentially the same idea, but instead of getting lost in another dimension by way of, in a of a pyramid, they go to the Bermuda Triangle, which was cool at the time. Uh, and then next thing you know, they're on an island where there's different dimensions within the island, and you got Roddy McDowell, and that's that's super cool, too. I haven't um, seen that. But, but, slide, but sliders, I think, is very much like this. But I just want to say, yeah. lastly, and this is just an arbitrary thing, um, this show, I love how they have to have the Logan's Run car that <laughs> that is always available if they need a futuristic car, but they don't have the budget, but they can rent it. It's either right. that or the uh, you know the uh, from the, the the Doomsday Mobile from uh, from Damnation Alley. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was like. Un, this is a show that has not been overexploited. Nobody really talks about it except, hey, do you remember it? Like if you you watched it, and also the pilot episode, when you see the one on YouTube, has the original commercials, lots of Ford commercials. <laughs> like it is a, a time machine, a lot like the last episode when we watched the VHS of uh, Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. I liked the cast not for any specific reason i just i just felt like they went they were good together it was so 80s in a lot of it that it it kind of hurt uh but that's the general vibe i got yeah but when doing a little research about it that was the network you know then the network wanted less of a sci-fi show and more of like a family hour show it's like i mean you oh, should this see American what they did family. to Kenneth Johnson's V. Yeah, right. I mean, th- this was what happened in the mid, especially the mid '80s. Was like, how do you make this a mainstream network show? Uh, and um, not surprisingly, it was at the bottom of the ratings heap. This show was uh, put on kind of at the last minute. Because a mid-season replacement. It was a January debut. It was, yeah? it was it debuted in January and was off in March. So Mike Hammer, 
uh, Stacy Keach was caught with uh, drugs. And oh, so, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Ah, and, and this filled in the spot. I'm gonna yeah, get a little, yeah. They they had ordered 22 episodes and only had 14 in the can. And then when you add eight to 14, you get 22. You get 22. Right? All right. So is there only one season of this show? Because if there, it's not even a season. Not even a full season. It's not even a full season. Okay, because that's what's interesting. I find it interesting that they still put like season one in front of everything. Well, Oh, oh! That, don't get me started. Yeah, I would, that was confusing me. I figured, and then I'm seeing uh, things that are like. So the version at a previous job, Kelsey, I used to get into arguments with people in a marketing department of a previous institution because they would want to title a release, uh, the complete season one, and I'm like, that's all there is. We can just call it the complete series, or better yet just call it the name of the show and they would look at me like oh i can't wait till you're gone and they got their wish after 10 years <laughs> and this show does has no official release the rights are owned by universal and they would have to clear it it has been shown on the usa network and sci-fi before That's it was sci-fi uh but the the ones that are on YouTube are VHS rips from the time with all of the expected quality. And there, there's a, there's an image that will show up online that it looks like it's a UK DVD release because mm -hmm. uh, it has the UK right. uh, imprimatur of, yeah. you know, what age and all that. And it yeah. says other world complete series. That's a picture of a bootleg. Yeah. That is a bootleg. A, a, lo a lot of the bootleggers do fake UK covers to make it look like you're looking at it's an import when it's just right. a bootleg. It, it is a wonderful parade of some of the faces that you love from that era. You've got Ray Walston, you've got John Astin, you've got Mark Leonard, you know, a Star Trek regular. Uh, you have Jonathan Banks, who was that guy in everything until everyone knew his name, you know, after, uh, um, you know, Better Call Saul and, and uh, you know. Um, that universe. Breaking the Vince, Bad. Bad. And so the Vince Gilligan but, universe. But, but he, was one, he was one of the, Vincent Schiavelli. Yeah, you know, I, I even saw, did I see um, uh, uh, Zalman King shows up in one of those episodes? So, yeah, yeah. But it's one of those things where you've got this this feeling of familiarity of just TV from that era that even in the 80s, those guys were a little bit old, but they were still getting at least some some work, which was kind of cool. Jonathan Banks was such a working actor. I mean, like Jonathan Banks has been in everything and usually as a thug or a right. bad guy. Right. And, and uh, it, it was around this time where I would start noticing that guy who's always yeah. in that movie or that TV show. But um, he, he's one of those people, like along with Dick Miller and some Dick. other familiar faces, where I started rooting for these, you know, John C. Riley before anyone knew his name. I'm like, go guy who's in everything when we finally know your name or for one particular uh, role. So when I, when I look at this, this show, Otherworld, it's yet another Jonathan Banks. Oh, could have been yeah. someone, John but it just, they pulled the plug. And again, he's back to supporting roles where we could find it. Jonathan Banks played the Wiley Coyote main villain who <laughs> you did start to root for in that way. Uh, probably that 
the sci-fi show that has that role closest was um, in The Incredible Hulk. There Jack is, Colvin in The Incredible Hulk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that's the role. But every week he has to be summoned to whatever weird sector they are, and he has to be like, "I'll get those Middle away Americans." Again. They stole my crystal, which is a secret back door, right? That's right. the whole plot. But um, you do kind of want them to get caught at some point and uh, thrown into jail. Where's that dark episode? <laughs> so one, one of the other things we do uh, is we, we like to shine a spotlight on, we just shine a spotlight on something that isn't talked about, but you can find. We also like to talk about things that you can't see. Uh, we thought we would briefly get into London after midnight, which is sort of the most talked about lost horror film. But I wanted to ask my first exposure to London after midnight was Dennis Gifford's pictorial history of horror movies. I did not know for the longest time because I had seen so many, you know, Lon Chaney and London After Midnight with this wonderfully iconic, with the top hat and the, and the pointy sharp teeth looking incredibly uh, frightening and evil and iconic. I was unaware that you couldn't find that anywhere. And it wasn't until much later that I realized and learned after I tried, because when I first discovered this, this was at a time where anything that I saw, if it, it, it just had to be on TV. So I either turned on the television and there it was, or I found it in TV Guide, or it played at a revival theater, which really didn't play these movies anyway. The revival theaters showed like Fantasia and Pinocchio, you know, and I was lucky enough to see uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, or at the public library that I mentioned, that's where they showed lots of older films, and that's where I first saw uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, for example, which changed my life also. Everyone's so, life. Yeah. So that being said, I, uh, I, am, I think that's a wonderful choice for a great film that no one can get because it's sitting in buried somewhere in, you know, where the, next to the Ark of the Covenant in that yeah. warehouse. Or in frames. Right. I, yeah. And what is, what's really interesting is like, I mean, I first encountered it, as I said, in Dennis Gifford's Pictorial History of Horror Movies, which I was given for Christmas in, uh, I was like eight or nine years old. I mean, because my mom is cool. Uh, and uh, and I'm flipping through it and there's that, that picture with the beaver hat and the pointy teeth. And it's like, whoa. And right there, it talks about this is a lost film, but like that, that book came out in 73 and the last known print burnt up in 65. No, so it was last known print. Last known I'll bet, print. I'll bet it's sitting oh, there. Oh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, it's I, I, just there, wanna, so. I just want to jump in and just say, because pieces of the lost full cut of Metropolis were found not, were, I yeah, exactly, yeah. What Brazil ten years ago or something? Yeah, that, and, and yeah. I mean, America. growing up, we were told this was lost, and now you can see the whole cut of Metropolis. I saw a restoration cut. Now you can see the whole thing. So I saw yes. the '80s cut. Yeah. with the rock yeah. score, Giorgio Moroder yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. never say never. But like, yeah. But I would mean, have still like my whole idea of like, oh, films are lost. You know, the, it made this huge impression, and I think one of the reasons that London After Midnight has such 
the cachet it has is is so many people it was their first knowledge of i mean there's a lost hundreds film. of thousands of lost films i do believe, that is, i do believe the script is out there and circulating and that's not hard to find so no and and tcm did a did a kind of doctor who style telesnap recreation on on their lon cheney set and, they use stills and dialogue to recreate it it's like 40 minutes long it's it's not the same. It's actually kind of slightly tedious viewing, but at least gives you a sense of what the film would have been like. And Dan, well, just very quickly, could you tell us what the film is and what like the plot is? Because we, uh, well, we didn't talk about If you've that. seen Todd Browning's Mark of the Vampire, it's with Bela Lugosi. It's London After Midnight remade with Bela Lugosi, it, but it appears to be a vampire movie but it's really a detective film. It was uh, in Famous Monsters a lot too. Oh, cause yeah, because it's, 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 it's a classic yeah. reference. But there are so many important lost horror films uh, in, in the canon of lost horror. And I know I have to make this short. For example, there's three Gollum movies. We only have the lost, the last Gollum movie, which is the prequel. Mm -hmm. And then there's the original Gollum movie from 1915. The movie that I wish we had is the 1917 Gollum in the Dancing Girl, which, as far as I can tell, is the first metafictional horror film in which the actor from the 1915 version pretends to be the Gollum in order to scare a girl he has a crush on. So we already have film commenting on film. Wait, is that Scooby-Doo? but like Rexy. <laughs> well, last thing you. I'll say about this, just in terms of uh, our obsession with that is we're obsessed because we've never seen this film. So our imaginations will take us in all sorts of directions that we would love to see or hope to see. And like you said, you know, DW, that basically it was a bit of a snooze when they did their recreation of the script with the pieces that they had available. Yes, interesting, but maybe not as exciting as we would like it to be. But nothing can match where our, our minds take us when we see, see those iconic, iconic images. And that, to me, is the ultimate satisfaction, is maybe we don't need to find it yeah. after all. Or our faces will melt off if we find it. <laughs> Always I, right. a possibility. So I was going back and forth between whether you guys had seen it or not. Like... <laughs> Because it, it seemed like for a second I was like Dan's seen this movie. The well, we know so we know it's it's you know we're the type of brains that want to find out as much as we can about something even if we can't even see it itself. So did you I, read the script? You mentioned that the script is available. Have any of you sat down and actually read the whole thing? I've read the treatment. I've seen the TCM recreation, and of course I've seen Mark of the Vampire. And I've seen as many of the stills as you can say. Yeah. But no, I mean, I haven't seen the film. If you work in the industry long enough, you can talk with a voice of authority and make it sound like you've seen something when in fact you have not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're good at that. Well, Ask me about Convention City. <laughs> for someone who, who hasn't garnered or fostered this interest in this movie, what do you recommend checking out first in terms of Just what what is the most interesting thing you've seen that is left of the movie look at the um, still yeah was, i would yeah, was, i would just start by looking at that lon cheney still the still uh, sells the, it the stills are are, are uh, the in, best uh that they're the most compelling things that exist from this so 
you know, like like what we're saying is kind of when we were kids and you get magazines, even when people would write about it, it was it was the graphics, right? And and the format of the magazine or like a compilation, or I used to get the Starlog books, you know, which were in color. Uh, the best those, ones. Those were reference, right? Those were like reference things. And as a kid, you know, when you couldn't watch a movie over and over, you could open the book and see it over and over again. Now, because I had a Starlog history of sci-fi, my parents never would let me see Flesh Gordon, no matter <laughs> how much I said the effects were amazing. But they wrote about that movie the, in Starlog. The, the stop motion Penosaurus, yes. Yeah. Uh, David, is there anything you're working on now you can hint at, or is it too Yeah. Good? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Plug you know, it up. People seem to like In Search of Darkness, so we did In Search of Darkness Part 2. People really seem to like In Search of Darkness 2 and said, will you please make In Search of Darkness 3? So we are in production on In Search of Darkness Part 3, and right? Because there isn't enough 80s horror to go around yet that we've covered, so there's more to dive into. And so we're in the production on that, and you can look, if you go to 80s horrordoc.com uh, uh, or our socials, you know, all the socials for In Search of Tomorrow are 80s sci-fi doc, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Uh, same thing for 80s horror doc, if you go to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, at the very least, you could sign up uh, for our mailing list, and we will let you know when we are, when In Search of Darkness 3 is going to be ready around Halloween and how you can get it. Cool. Awesome. Also, wait, this is a very personal question. Will the new movie feature your backyard like this movie <laughs> did? I don't know if people could tell. Did you guys know that a big bulk of the film we saw was shot in his backyard? Working, my, working with my backyard was the most uh, flexible talent that I could work with. Um, uh, it's always there, never late, doesn't require much. Um, Short commute. Yeah. Yeah, this is a movie that was made uh, during the pandemic. Uh, this is very much a pandemic movie uh, because we lined everyone up and then all of a sudden we were in lockdown. Yeah. And we, and we were uh, waiting. And a lot of the people that we wanted to get, uh, they wanted to do it. And then they said, well, I, I'll Zoom. But the thing is, we're shot, we shot it in 4K. You had to be there in person. And, uh, you know, the last thing we want to do, uh, especially a lot of these are our older folks as well, is we don't, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to endanger anybody or anything like that. And, and as time went by, and in order to get these interviews, we realized we got to figure something out. Uh, uh, we need some airflow, and I also need a controlled environment where I can film that's not inside. Uh, and so at, I figured my backyard is the best way to do it. It's super duper cool to have icons of 80s sci-fi, whether it's, you know, Sam J. Jones, Flash Gordon, whether it's Bruce Boxleitner of Tron, you know, whether it's Walter Koenig, you know, Chekhov from Star Trek, whether it's Will Wheaton, you know, Star Trek Next Generation and, and so on and so forth, whether it's Adrian Barbeau in my backyard, whether it's John Dykstra in my backyard. Uh, I mean, it's just, it, the parade was endless and I could not believe who, was using my bathroom and eating food. <laughs> I just think that uh, we should crowdfund a plaque for your backyard. <laughs> that would be, it'd be great. That would be great. I know we've been running long, but we actually got our very first viewer letter. Uh, this was 
something we would do on our last podcast, and I'm so excited. Here it is. This is from Abby Buck on Instagram. Dear Archive Guys, how about the adventures of Hiram Holiday? In all sincerity, I'd love to follow you, Abby. Uh, I had never heard of the adventures of Hiram Holiday, but it is a sitcom that aired on NBC in 1956, and it was... Uh, about a copy editor who had inserted a comma correctly, saving his publisher from a lawsuit. And the publisher was so excited that he funded an all expense paid trip around the world and he becomes a James Bond-like spy slash copy editor. Before there was James Bond. That yes. works for me, that works for me. Listen commas can save lives you know yeah. let's eat grandma right. let's right. eat uh, comma that's grandma. that's a guy uh, yeah I, I i will start looking for yeah well, holiday I, I couldn't have been happier with that letter because that was freaking obscure i'm gonna activate all the kids on tv time machine all right that's all the time we have for today for archive guys this is our guest david weiner i'm matt patterson I'm Kelsey Milburn. I'm D.W. Ferranti. Thanks for listening. Or Thanks, watching. David. Thanks for having me on. It was a, it was a blast, guys.